0: Before we jump in, we're still in the love series here because people demanded an encore. I'm just kidding, but we're just still in it, all right? So uh, I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna jump into the sermon, okay? Uh, God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this church that you've built. God, I ask that um, your your glorious authoritative word would be spoken clearly today. God, don't let me get in your, your spirit's way of what you wanna do and say. God, we love you so much. Jesus' name, amen. All right. All right, so life as we know it is filled. With all kinds of like schools of thought and philosophies and, 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 and teachings and, and things that like people trying to boil life down. Hey, life is really about this thing, right? Because there's a lot of complex things out there, big books. Even the Bible is a big book. But what we need is oftentimes a simplicity. We need maybe even just like a tagline or a few lines to kind of think through our life as we're living it. To help us make decisions and things that come up. And there's a lot of competition for that. Sermons not being the least of these, tons of things out there. One of the popular things these days is TED Talks. Now, maybe you're a fan of TED Talks, but I was on the website this week and I, I pulled it up and there's like 3,100 TED Talks and you know, I sorted it by popularity just to see what's everybody watching, what's the TED Talk that's like way up there and I'm looking through it and, and a lot of these TED Talks is, is representative of people's like life's work. Like they've been studying this for like decades in some circumstances and they're like, this is the thing that I wanna share with you, right? It's there, they're boiling it down. Here's like a really helpful life thing. Some of the titles of some of these TED Talks are as follows. Um, How Great Leaders Inspire Action. Maybe you're a leader and you need to inspire action. Uh, How to Get People to Listen to You. (laughs) That's always important, right? Lots of stuff on relationships. My Philosophy for a Happy Life. Power of vulnerability, how I held my breath for 17 minutes. (laughs) That's literally one of them. 16 minutes ain't gonna cut it, guys. Secrets to the universe come at 17, okay? Um, uh, How to stop screwing yourself over. That's an intense one. And everything in between. And again, it's, it's people making up, this is stuff they've been working on a long time. Hey, here's a really important thing that's gonna help guide and help you make decisions as you go through life and relationships. Podcasts are another one right? Um, I love podcasts. I've grown to love them more over the years, um, but tons of different podcasts, sometimes like categorical podcasts, like about a specific niche, other times about just kind of all of life. And it, it may be like it's a political category. If you, if you lean left on the political spectrum, there's Pod Save America. If you lean right, there's Ben Shapiro. If you lean, there's also Joe Rogan. <laughs> and Joe Rogan is like, I was looking at last year's most popular, I think he was the number two most downloaded popca- podcast on iTunes, which is kind of crazy because like when I saw it, I was like, how does the guy who used to host Fear Factor, he talks for three hours, multiple times a week. I'm like, how's a guy who used to host Fear Factor have that much to say? But anyway, he's really popular. I'm always worried too, like with podcasts, because I, I listen to most of them at 2X and like fast, just to kind of get through them because some of them are really long. And I've, I've always been worried that one day I'm gonna meet one of these people in person and I'm gonna be like really underwhelmed by them because it's gonna be like, hey, you know what I mean? Because they will be talking in normal speed and I'm used to listening to them Two eggs. But podcasts, along with TED Talks, atheistic podcasts, Christian podcasts, religious, philo- philosophical podcasts, tons of different ones. Social media, is another kind of medium where these things get delivered, Instagram gurus uh, that trying to guide our lives and, and explain, sometimes it's just with like pithy statements, like sometimes it's just like, you know, one sentence, like take the stairs, and that, which is, really isn't that helpful, but it's like, oh, that's nice, or eat more salads, you know what I mean? Like uh, another one that, get, that happens a lot that's kind of a confusing one is is YOLO. Um, for those of you who don't know what YOLO means, it stands for you only live once, and it kind of gets used for like, everything like the guy who's sitting in his apartment with like a steak and mashed potatoes and broccoli eats the steak eats the mashed potatoes gets the broccoli he's like I really don't want to eat the broccoli but I know I should YOLO right so he eats the broccoli and then the guy next door is like I'm gonna eat 9,000 Reese's Pieces because YOLO you know what I mean like it's used for everything Um, it's like just a general life philosophy the rock is all over social media the rock I feel like every week there's like a video where the rock is voicing it over being like you want to know how I got so awesome I was born this way. You know, it's just like, I'm kidding. If you're listening, Rock, I'm kidding. Don't come to my house, okay? Um, but so many different social media personalities, podcasts, TED Talks. I mean, you could spend your whole life just trying them out. You could spend your whole life just testing all these different propositional truths and statements and philosophies and moral ethics that people lay out there. And what we're asking ourselves when we do this, because we do need something like this. We need something easy that's, that's boiled down. What is the most important teaching? What is the most important ethic to guide our life and relationships? This is what so many of these things are trying to answer, trying to shed light on this, trying to shed light on this. So it's with that that we're going to step into Mark 12 today. Mark 12, 28 through 34. So we're going to read it here. We're going to read in the CSB version. I'm going to have it up here. So feel free to follow along. This is Mark 12. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, And to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to ask him questions any longer. Here's the context here. We're getting towards the end of the book of Mark. This is Jesus talking to a scribe, also known as other translations render an expert in the law. Jesus has come back to Jerusalem. He knows there's a bunch of enemies there, people that want to kill him. He knows that, but he also knows that he's walking to the cross eventually. And he comes back to Jerusalem. And he's in this is uh, this series of parables and uh, stories that are like narrative that Jesus is talking and, and talking with the leaders of the time. He's, a lot of it's in the temple. So the Jerusalem temple where he's, um, you know, it's, a, it's the center of Jewish religious faith. And he's talking to all these leaders Like, before this, there's stories of him talking to the Pharisees, which is a more conservative political group. The Sadducees, the more uh, liberal uh, political group. And so many others, this expert in the law. Like, for us, we can maybe imagine this being in, like, the Senate building here or something like that. And everyone's coming up to Jesus as he's talking and teaching. People coming up to him trying to trap him. People coming up to him trying to challenge him. Everyone, Republicans, Democrats, and And I always think of the one libertarian guy who's always trying to get like weed legalized. That's like his whole goal, you know, that guy, everybody, everybody's coming up to Jesus and talking to him. And it's in that context that we see the scribe come up to Jesus and ask, which command is the most important of all? That's the context in which the scribe comes up and asks him this. And here's where Jesus starts. He starts in verse 29. It says, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this might, when you saw this, you might kind of be like, what is that? What's, I recognize maybe some of those other things, but I didn't necessarily recognize this. This is what's called the Shema in the Jewish faith. This is perhaps like the anthem. It's like the Lord's prayer for us, one of the most important things. I mean, devout Jews would say this morning and night. It's core to their faith. And what this is is, is it's their identity. They say, this comes from Deuteronomy 6, and this reminds them, they say this because they're they're reminded that God is their king. God has rescued them from Egypt. He's given them the land. He's given them their inheritance. They are God's people. This is what this reminds them of, the Shema, who they are, right? And this is what Jesus starts with. He starts with the Shema. Um, It's his kingship. I mean, you're, 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 like, if you know the Old Testament, remember Moses, the famous name in the Old Testament? And he goes to the burning bush. Um, God calls him to the burning bush, starts talking to him from the burning bush. And he tells Moses he needs to go and his people from, uh, from Egypt. And then, and then Moses is like, what should I call you? Like, what should I say when, they, when you send me? They're like, who should I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them the I am has sent you. That's the name God gives for himself. And, when, and that's like that name is in the Hebrew Shema in Deuteronomy. And so people are reminded that the I am is their God and that he has given them an identity. And Jesus starts with this, and I love that he starts with this because it reminds the Jews what God's done for them. It reminds them of the long history of God's goodness to them. Okay, That's where Jesus starts. Then he moves to verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Now, I'm bundling these together. Now, if you were to look at Deuteronomy 6, where Jesus is quoting here, you were to look at Mark 12, you were to look at Matthew 22 and the spot in Luke where this is mentioned, you'll notice that there's a couple different differences. Some of them just have three. This one has um, heart, soul, mind, strength. And other ones have three and they mix one in and out. And the reason for that is because the Jewish conception of heart and mind and the Greek conception of heart and mind were different. So like if a Jew was to say your heart, like they would be thinking of something different than the Greeks. And so that's why you see a little bit of variance in the scriptures here. But the point is this, loving God with the totality of your being. And I lumped these two together, heart and soul. That's where we're going to start. That's where Jesus started. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It's referring to affection. This is referring to emotions, soul, and spirit. It's the immaterial part of who we are. Jesus is saying, love God with your emotions and your affections. That's part of how we are to love him. Now, maybe you're here today, maybe you're not a Christian, you're exploring, you're thinking about things. And you see that, and you think about some of the Christians you see in your life, and you think to yourself, love God with your heart and your soul, like, it's nice to say that, but I feel like I've seen a lot of Christians that don't have an affection for God. Like, to me, it just seems like they were born that way, and, and it's almost cultural. It doesn't seem like they have a, like a loving affection and emotional attachment to God, to which uh, I would say, yeah, sometimes that's how it is, but this is not what Jesus calls Christians to. He calls them to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul. In fact, the Bible even talks about that when this is missing from us. This is how it says it in Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord said, these people approach me with their speeches to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me and human rules direct their worship of me. So the Bible knows that sometimes it's just lip service. The Bible knows that sometimes it's just empty, ritualistic action. Maybe they know everything about the Bible. Maybe they're striving. They're getting up early and they're praying. But still, your heart can be far from God. And so if you notice that, I would say, yeah, it's a thing. And Jesus invites us into an affectionate, loving relationship with himself and with his Father. So, we need to think about this for ourselves. Maybe, again, maybe you know a lot about the Bible. Maybe you can list all 66 books out in a row. Maybe you know all the songs from growing up. Maybe all your family says they're Christians. You've been going to church religiously for months and months and years and years. And yet, this text asks us, as we think about loving God, the totality of who we are, do we have an affection? Do we have an emotional affection towards God? Do you think of him like as a person in that way? And the way you have those emotional affections towards your family and your friends, maybe people at work, your spouse, your kids. Does that at all describe how you feel about God? Really thought-provoking. Next, he goes to mind, verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. I love this one because it's talking about the intellect. God gave us reason and logic, and rationality, the ability to problem solve and see patterns and all these things. But look, uh, obviously there's a big spectrum of gifting in this, right? I mean, if we had all of our SAT scores lined up today, there'd be a big variance, right? Uh, The other day, I discovered, and this is gonna be embarrassing, but you know Tootsie Rolls? Like, you know how they're like wrapped and they got those little tabs on the ends? Like, we're talking a year ago. I figured out, that if you pull on those tabs, it comes unraveled. Like I was like spinning them and unwrapping it. And then I saw somebody do that and I was like, and it shocked me, okay? I figured that out a year ago. We have a whole spectrum of intellectual gifting, okay? A whole spectrum. Now, here's the point is God wants you to love him with your mind. Now, think about what that means. Think about how profound it is that he wants you to love you he wants you to love him with your reason. How many of y'all have experienced doubts about Christianity? How many of y'all, have, people are raising their hands, and <laughs> thanks, dude. No, You don't have to do that. Um, uh, how many of y'all have experienced doubts? How many of y'all like, have experienced, come across something in the Bible and been like, what? <laughs> what? Like, Have you read the whole Bible? There's crazy stuff in there, dude. Crazy stuff. Maybe y'all have uh, come across this. Pithy statement. Sometimes it's on bumper stickers. Sometimes it's shared by our friends on social media. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. How pithy. This, look, I can appreciate a love for the Bible's authority. I can appreciate that it's God's spoken word. But this is weak. This is not loving God with your mind. This is not how God wants you to approach him. He knows, like you've read parts through the Bible and been like, oh my gosh, Google that or pull out a study Bible or whatever. I'm like, it's taken me years. Like I think of one theological topic in particular that's taken me years to even begin to get. God knows that. And he wants you to love him with your reason. You know, the reason that he gave you. Since the enlightenment, reason and logic have been been posited against spirituality, but that was never how God designed it. He uses your reason to lead you to Him. Look, sometimes uh, I think about it this way: like the Bible has like really complex things, right? Like Trinity. Like, what? How is God all? How is God three different people, but also one? And like, like a, His predestination. How does God work our will that He gave us in with His sovereign predestinating hand? You ever pondered that one in the middle of the night? But think about it. Think about it this way: like. It, if you look at like other spiritualities and religions, like the Greek pantheon, let's just take the Greek pantheon. The gods are sleeping around with each other. They're getting hammered. They're spending time with people. They're making mistakes. They're just kind of capriciously doing all kinds of things. And humanity's looking at that and be like, hey, that's kind of like us. Yeah, maybe that's because it came from us. Maybe that's because it came from us. Look, if you're going to look into the Holy Word in the Bible, wouldn't you expect to come across things that an infinite, unapproachable, transcendent God put there? Like, if you can put everything in the Bible, understand it perfectly, in a little box, put it away, totally get that, isn't that going to give you doubts that it came from an infinite God? Doesn't it comfort you that there's stuff in there that your reason can't quite get around? that's begging you to come at it and think about it and question it and study it. That sounds rational to me. I mean, it sounds rational to me when when David in the Old Testament says to God, oh, hey, I wanna build you a temple, God. I wanna build you the sweetest temple that the world has ever seen so that everybody knows that you're our God. And then God responds to him, you would build me a temple The whole earth is my footstool. I created everything in it. And you would build me a temple. That sounds to me like a response that a creator God would make. When Moses comes to God in the burning bush, and Moses is like, what do I, who do I say sent me? Who are, like, who are you? And God says, I am that I am. That sounds like an answer creator God would give. Like, can you imagine if he was like, "Who who should I say sent me? And, the, and God was like, Kevin, tell him Kevin sent you. And then he goes, into, he goes into Egypt and he's like, hey guys, Kevin sent me. And everyone's like, I know like 10 Kevins. Like what's special about your Kevin? Like that's not what he says. He says the I am has sent you. It sounds reasonable to me. God wants us to love him with our minds. It's so awesome. And here's like, think, think about why. Think about why God wants your reason and your logic and your thoughtfulness and your question asking, your seeking. Think about your best and closest relationships, family, friends, coworkers. Think about the people that you are just closest with. Do they not know you the most? Do they not know every part of you, what you like, the the mistakes that you make, the things that you're good at, the weird things, the confusing things that you do? Your closest relationships know you and intellectually understand you probably the best. And that leads to closeness. So it shouldn't shock us when God says, I want you to love me, when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with your mind, because it builds intimacy and closeness of relationship as we seek him and seek to have our questions answered and seek to live in the tension of him being infinite and us being finite. And this is why the gospel is so amazing, because God knows us perfectly. He knows every single part of us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows every thought that we have, every dream that we have, every conversation that we have. He knows us and still came after us. Every wicked thought, every twisted piece of us knows it, still desired us. That's why this loving God with our mind is so amazing. And it shouldn't surprise us that he wants that from us. Next is loving God with all your strength. Fourth thing that he lists. This is our will, our exertion, our strength. Like when the rock gets up early, he's got to just rally his will and do his reps. (laughs) See, rock, I'm I'm talking good about you, bro. Don't hate me. Um, Like this is what it takes. It takes will, it takes energy, it takes exertion. It takes focus. It takes that same way that it takes it for your jobs and our marriages and our relationships and our house projects and everything, right? But sometimes, as we know, we can be lazy about stuff. This is the other side of this coin, loving God with our strength. Sometimes we know that we just kind of want to sleep in, you know, like kind of just want to not think (laughs) I kind of just don't want to discipline myself to spend time with my God who loves me. I kind of just, I don't know, I want to eat bacon and eggs and watch Netflix. This is the temptation. Our strength and our focus and our energy oftentimes go elsewhere instead of towards loving the God of the Bible and his son, Jesus Christ. And so, like when we think about the greatest commandment here, like is, like when we think about loving God with our strength, which of these has, is the spirit just really bringing up that you don't see? Maybe you don't want to think hard about God. Maybe you just want to accept stuff. You don't want to dig into the things that you don't understand. Maybe you don't feel an emotional affection. Maybe you don't feel like you love God with your will and your energy and your focus. What is it that God wants you to love him in? What is it that God wants you to love him in? Isn't it amazing? that God wants every part of you? Think about that. He's not content with part of you. He wants every single corner of who you are. This is not a distant, cold, demanding God. This is a God who loves you and wants to be in relationship with you and wants every single part of who he created you to be. And love is, by nature, relational. Like, you can't have love without two parties, right? I mean, we're not talking about, like, as we've talked about before. We're not talking about, like, Oreo, loving Oreos, right? That's different, okay? We're talking about relational love. And in relational love, you get changed, right? Loving God in this way releases God's love in us and changes us. And this is why, when the scribe says, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus? Jesus doesn't give him one, he gives him two. And this is the first time that in, nowhere in the Old Testament do these two commandments get put together like this. this. Jesus is the first one to do this. This shows the authority with which he's operating here. He's the first one to say, loving God with all of who you are. Put the Shema first, love all your God with who, uh, everything, every part of you. And then he goes to love your neighbor as yourself. He's the first one to do that, okay? And so, we ask, what is the second greatest commandment? Because Jesus gives them two, intentionally. So here's where the second greatest commandment begins. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we're going to start here with the as yourself, because it seems to be that yourself, the way you love yourself, is supposed to inform how we love our neighbors. Um, now, the first thing that I thought about this was, like, I'm supposed to love my neighbors as I love myself, but sometimes I don't love everything about me. <laughs> like, yeah, sometimes I love myself, but other times I have shame. <laughs> like, what do I do when I'm filled with shame? And yeah, maybe it could be talking about also, we're talking about loving ourselves, could be talking about self-care stuff. Maybe you don't treat yourself well, you constantly sleep deprived, you don't eat well, you... Don't handle your money well, so you're constantly stressed and anxious. You could probably include that too. But some of y'all, I feel this too sometimes. I do feel like I'm loving myself well. I do feel like, hey, yeah, I I care for this thing that God made me, (laughs) you know? But even that can get messed up because even that can become self centeredness. Even like that swinging too far can become just self-absorbed, like, arrogance. It's like a fine line, you know? (laughs) It's a fine line to walk for Jesus to say, love your neighbor as yourself, when sometimes we're swinging into shame, other times we're swinging into arrogance. So why would Jesus say that? Like, when he knows that it's hard. It's hard for that to be like the North Star that guides us into loving our neighbor. And the reason is, is because of what comes before it. Remember, for the Jews, what Jesus starts here is with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh, which is Hebrew for, I am. And they remember everything that that means. They remember when he gave that name. They remember the identity that they were given by God and the love that God showed them for years and years. And they disobey him and they go into the desert and he comes back, and he loves them more, and they disobey him when he's given them the land, and he loves them more, and they think about the history of who they are and the identity that God has given them, the the long-standing love, the word the Bible uses, the covenantal love that he's given them. And it's from that place that God expects us to love ourselves. Because even though we constantly fail and Do regrettable things from shame and like we wish that we didn't have that, mistakes that we made, and the arrogance when we take credit for things that we shouldn't be taking credit for, and people see that and see that we're full of ourselves. And God says, Remember, I loved you before you changed that. Before I changed that in you. That's the place that Jesus is saying to love ourselves. That's what he has in mind. It's only with the power of the gospel for us as Christians that that changes, the identity that he gives us. Then he goes to verse 31. What is the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor, right? So loving ourselves informs loving our neighbor. Okay, so now we have a new identity, right? Um, now we have this thing that God's given us. He, we know that he loved us while we were sinners, not after we cleaned up. That's when he loved us. Okay, he values us, even not for what we do, so we can love ourselves. And from that place, we move into loving our neighbor. And we still mess that up. That's still hard, right? I think about uh, like the love language, you know the book, The Love Languages? It's got like 10 billion reviews on Amazon. And it's helpful, like you know, the spending quality time with someone, giving them gifts and, 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 and speaking words of affirmation, all the love languages. Um, I think I missed one, but I can't remember what it is. And uh, so like that book is really helpful. It's helpful for Joni and I. I'm sure it's been helpful for some of y'all. But like one of the things that he talks about in that book is like the love tank. Caleb, Caleb told me about this years ago, and I was like, this is so true. The love tank is, is this concept where, like, if you're receiving love, the way, especially the way that you like to receive love, your tank's going up, right? It's like filling up with water, filling up with love, baby, right? Getting it. But the problem is, and then you can, like, then you can use that love to go out and love people, because your love tank is full. But what about when people don't love you well? What about that? What about when your tank's empty for months on end, What are you supposed to do then? Just turn the faucet and nothing come out? That's okay. I'm just going to be mean because you've been mean to me for months, bro. Is that what we're supposed to do? No, again, love your neighbor comes from what came before it. Like, look, the point of this, like, there's a lot of places in the Bible that God spells out, that his, his, his apostles spell out what loving is. Oh, it's hospitality. It's thinking of others before. All these things, right? So many detailed passages where he spells it out. But what Jesus wants to point out here, which is why he doesn't go into all this detail, of, here's what love means, na, 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 is the order. Loving neighbor flows from being loved by God and loving him and loving ourselves because he loved us and he saw value there. And then we love our neighbor. He's calling attention to the order. We have this eternal fountain of love as Christians in Jesus who pursued us before we pursued him. That's the foundation of all this. Like the love tank can always be full. And if it's low, we know where the eternal spring is. We know who it is because it's a person and we can go to the person. It's a buffet of love, man. You can go anytime, get as much as you want. That's the point here. Do you cultivate that? When you're thinking about loving yourself, maybe you're filled with shame. Maybe something happened recently that you really regret. And you're filled with shame. Maybe you've gotten hints that you're arrogant. People maybe have said some things to you and maybe you've gotten some feedback and you're like, oh, maybe this is something I should think about. Maybe some of these things have happened. Are you going to the well of eternal life? Or are you just trying to let the truth come from within you and Disney movie it, Right? Are you going to the well of Jesus Christ? Because this is the order that he calls us to. Your identity, loving God, loving ourselves and loving neighbor. You know what's interesting is, uh, as I was reading through this, um, the scribe, like when Jesus says this, the scribe's like, yep, right, Jesus. And then he answers something, basically adds some stuff to it. This is what he says in verse 33. Verse 33. He's like, yeah, Jesus, everything you said, loving God with all totality of who you are, every part of you, loving neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When I saw this, I was like, yeah, that's true. I mean, Jesus even responds to this and says that his answer was wise. This is true. But it was just like, it was so ironic for me to read this because this guy, this scribe is saying this To the ultimate sacrifice himself. He's saying this to the one who would abolish the need for the physical temple. He's saying this to the one who's standing in the temple, showing his authority and superior knowledge and intellect and kindness and love to everyone who's coming up to trap him. And he doesn't even realize that he's talking to what would become the ultimate sacrifice. He doesn't even see that, like weeks, maybe months after this. It's hard to tell from the narrative, but he's in Jerusalem. Jesus would die on the cross, and the curtain that's in the temple would be torn in half, representing the end of it. Why? Because God is no longer dwelling in the temple. He's dwelling inside his people. That's why the Bible says that our body is a temple, because he comes to make his home in us when we have faith in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't even know what he's saying and who he's saying it to. He doesn't even realize it. What is the second greatest commandment? Loving your neighbor as yourselves. And what this scribe doesn't realize is that Jesus is the power behind the second greatest commandment. Jesus is the means by which we can do this. And he knows what the greatest commandments are, but he doesn't know who. So what do we do now? This is clear, it's pretty pretty concise from Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The scribe asked for it succinctly, gave it to him. So what do we do? I can think of a a couple things. The first is uh, loving in the right order. Like, this is what we've been talking about all along. I think this is like the whole, one of the whole points of this passage. Because the wrong order can wreak havoc for loving ourselves first, even others first, instead of God. I think the order here is so important because it empowers what comes next. It empowers the ability to love our neighbor as we should. Um, so, it's like, when we're talking about what do we do now, we need to ask ourselves, is our life ordered this way? Is our love for God first and foremost? we loving him with our will, with our exertion and our energy and our intellect, seeking him out. Do we love him emotionally? I think that's one of the most important things that this passage wants us to ask, to look at our weeks, our days even. Does it reflect that? You know, kind of like you want to know somebody's list of priorities. You can just like look at their credit card, look at their bank account. it will tell you what their priorities are. Same thing with our, with our time and with our life. Are we loving in the right order that Jesus has called us to? The second is this. And it's in verse 34, and it's really thought-provoking. It's the end of the passage. So the scribe answers Jesus, yeah, you're right, Jesus. And then Jesus, it says, he sees that the scribe answered wisely after he says, like, you don't, it's greater than all the sacrifices. But then Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. This is what he says to the scribe. And it's kind of a scary answer. Like, if you're the scribe, you're like, wait, not far? My outside the kingdom of God? Like, what are you trying to say? It's kind of a really thought provoking, what does he mean? What's he saying? Here's what I think the point of this is is that we need to watch out. I'm talking about what do we do? We need to watch out for the deception of knowledge because knowing isn't enough. It says in James, the demons know who God is, the demons know who Jesus is, and they shudder, it says. They're not submitted to God. I think the point here is Jesus doesn't want just, like, it's not less than knowledge. You need to know who Jesus is. But you need to be submitted to him as Lord and king, too. And look, he says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, as in he's outside the kingdom. And the reason is because he doesn't love and he doesn't know the kingdom's king. He's not submitted to the kingdom's king. And who knows what happens with this guy? I think the text does this on purpose. We don't know. But we need to ask ourselves, are we deceived by knowledge? Maybe you've known about Christianity your whole life. Maybe you've been coming to church your whole life. Recite Bible verses. But does it stop there? Do you sometimes look at other people and the way that they respond to God? Maybe you've heard people pray sometimes, and you're like, man, what? Why do they talk to God that way? It's like they know him. Maybe that's you, maybe that's not you. Maybe you're like, no, yeah, I love the Lord and he's my king. To which I say, great, continue to grow in loving him with all that you are. But if not, if you look at that and it does feel like just a head knowledge, this is Jesus inviting you to know him as a person. This is him talking. And so if you feel like, that's the boat that you're in, please come talk to me afterwards. Please come talk to a leader here. We'd love to talk about that. Because this is the meaning of life. This is literally the meaning of life. So we're talking about the conclusion. Like, we think about our original question, right? With all these podcasts and TED Talks and things that they're addressing philosophies, right? What is the most important teaching ethic to guide our life and relationships? So much out there. What's the most important? Jesus says that it's love. He gives us an answer. He says that it's love love for God, remembering the way that He pursued us, and love for ourselves and our neighbor in the right order. Strength, heart, soul, mind, all of it. And he wants more than just your knowledge. He wants you to know him as the kingdom's king, to be in submission to him, to trust him, to have faith in the places that he takes you, to love him. When we take communion... We remember the ultimate sacrifice that kind of gets called out when the scribe says, this is greater than all the sacrifices. We remember the ultimate sacrifice himself, the one who reconciled us into the family of God at great cost to himself because he loves us. Pray with me. Lord, uh, Jesus, we thank you just for the simplicity of your teaching here. Jesus, you want us to love you and your Father with every part of us. You're selfish for us, God. You're not content to leave any part of us behind. And Jesus, we have not loved you the way that we should have at all times with every piece of us. And God, different pieces of us don't meet the standard that you want it to meet and you love us still. God, thank you for your grace. Draw it out of us, Lord. Lord Jesus, we need your help to show us where we can love you more. Because we were created for that. We know that. Jesus, we thank you for the way that this allows us to love when we don't want to love. And to love ourselves when we don't want to love ourselves. We thank you that you thought of those things. Um, Jesus, we love you so much. Praise in Jesus' name, amen.